As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Hello, you're listening to Full Time with Meg Linehan. I'm Meg, and you are listening to a show all about women's soccer on the Athletic Podcast Network. This week, Katie Strang is here for a special companion episode of the show. You may have seen our story this morning in which two former players detail the troubling behavior of Paul Riley, sexual coercion and harassment, plus multiple other players who described emotional and verbal abuse. On today's show, we discuss our reporting and the larger picture. Here's Katie. All right, Katie. So today, a major story that we've been working on for quite some time dropped. And, you know, obviously we want folks to read the story, but it's even hard to to know where to begin just because I feel like we've been living this for for a while (laughs) in terms of trying to get through and get get the reporting done, get it done accurately, get it done thoroughly, make sure that every every possible part of this has has been thought about, but I, I guess we should just kind of start at the beginning of what it means when two players make the decision to to talk about an experience like this. I mean, you've done a lot of investigative reporting, a lot of reporting in this landscape, and you know what when when we are handling a story that is this sensitive and and needs to be reported so thoroughly when you get someone stepping forward, like even that first moment, what goes through your head? I just got kind of like chills even thinking about that um, because it is such like a significant moment when someone decides to discuss something about their life that is so personal and painful and many times very traumatic. Um, And so this is like a really good opportunity for me to pump your tires, because I would say, you know, one of the most eye opening things for me working on this with you in this space, um, having not covered, you know, women's soccer before is like just the level of like cachet in your reputation within this world. And I say that because um, people, I think, often underestimate the level of trust it requires for someone to feel willing and able to share that 
information with you. Like whenever I embark on an investigation like this, I really try to be mindful of the fact that I am not entitled to someone's pain. I am not entitled to someone's story. And that if someone chooses to share that with me, that's a privilege. And that's something that I need to honor and show, you know, a ton of respect to not just in terms of reporting it and listening with, you know, compassion and sensitivity, um, but also to, you know, do a service to that disclosure by, you know, really doing a robust, vigorous job of reporting. Um, And so I give you so much credit that like it was immediately apparent to me just that like sort of level of implicit trust that these players had with you. Um, And that is no small thing. I mean, this story does not get done um, if that trust wasn't there. And this story would not ever see the light of day if those two women did not make the very, you know, courageous decision um, to not just come forward with their experiences, but to do so publicly, um, even for fear of retaliation, retribution, of you know, their names being, you know, dragged through the mug by anyone that, you know, might want to discredit them. You know, it it really felt like to me that they wanted to share this experience and the experiences that they had to ensure that it did not happen to others. Yeah, I think that is obviously such a huge part of it of just having that moment and knowing this is going to be a journey that kind of everyone is going on together and like our paths might be slightly different, but fundamentally like there is, you you want to make sure that things are done the right way because that's, that's just such a huge part of this of there is that trust. I think it, it almost, you know, thinking about NWSL as someone who has been covering the league or, you know, involved in the league in some form since it started in women's soccer before that as well, like going back to, you know, 99 World Cup where my relationship with the sport in like a more organized fashion in a professional fashion began. I mean, I just think about kind of the culture that we have seen grow. And I think it it almost takes makes sense for us to take that step back and consider I remember talking with you early on and being like, there are some stories that you need to read so that way you understand the landscape that this is happening in because even even in the story, there's this very passing mention of a team that was also playing in women's professional soccer in 2011 owned by Dan Borislaw called Magic Jack. And what happened with that team where, I mean, the the big kind of story about that team opens with this lead of, having players call him daddy which was mind-blowing like I mean this was like such an education for me some things that like I was clearly not aware of and some things that I you know in some ways I felt like you know I was so glad to have you as my like my Saka Sherpa for this story um but sometimes like it helps to have an outsider's perspective because I feel like there were times where I'd be like wait how common is it for players to marry their former coaches you know what I mean like just random stuff like that that seems to be sort of more common in like women's soccer than you know other other sports that I've seen and just you know it's it's interesting not necessarily in being material to this story but like in understanding sort of the greater context 
of the women's soccer landscape and it's many different like iterations in, in trying to understand the context in which these women were speaking out about experiences they had, right? Like it's always so important to contextualize um, a player's experience, you know, against the backdrop of the team, the organization, the league, um, you know, players sort of livelihoods, what they depend on, what their fears might be, what the sort of animating factors might be. You know, to me, one of the more fascinating sort of um, undercurrent, not even undercurrents, but sort of like tangents of this story or or sort of like mini storylines to this piece was the push, you know, for some sort of like, you know, sexual harassment guidelines, like some protocols and policies and procedures put in place to protect players in that like, you know, players really had to advocate for that. You know, Alex Morgan was instrumental in, in getting that done. And, and to me that, you know, these are all pieces of the puzzle, but I'm glad that, you know, you were able to really put these together in a cohesive way that helped not only like, you know, bolster my understanding of how it went, but I think for our readers as well. Yeah, I think there is this overall context too of not just this history of women's soccer where where other incidents like this have happened. And we we have seen, I mean, even this week, you know, fallout from the Washington Spear, all, all of this stuff has really been coming to the forefront. Like this is not necessarily anything that is new, but what is so baked into the system and, and I think is why it's so important that it's kind of high up in this story is this idea that silence has reigned supreme for so long in women's soccer because there's a couple parts of this, right? Silence helps the league survive. So any time a player speaks up about bad conditions, not only are there potential personal repercussions or retaliation, but there's also repercussions for your team, for the league itself, for the sport itself, because people might look at this story even today and say, we've got to write the NWSL off. The NWSL is bad. And the, you cannot, the NWSL as a concept is not these events, right? Like it's not even the code of silence. It's not, the, the players being disempowered from speaking up. The NWSL, when you actually think about what the concept of the NWSL is, is the players, right? Like it is the players playing in the league and all of these structures built around them are not the NWSL as this concept that we imagine it. There's a front office and there are people in power and that's certainly something. And that has been this kind of, you know, we call it a governing more of a willingness to stay silent. Like, there has been this pressure baked into the system and players have this understanding of if you speak up, you might be sending this entire thing, this whole house of cards tumbling. And that is that is such a terrible pressure, I think. Totally. Um, <laughs> totally. And, and you're totally right to, I, I think, assess like, Whenever we treat, you know, sort of like a big overarching, you know, governing body or league or sport as like a monolith, that's like super lazy and reductive, right? Like, and as much as that would be like sort of the lazy reactionist take, like, I I mean, there are so many points throughout the reporting of the story and, you know, in reading the story itself that you see, I think, really like affirming things 
about, you know, women's soccer. Like to me, you see so many examples of like teammates sticking up for other teammates, trying to protect other teammates, trying to empower them to speak up, trying to make sure that this doesn't happen to others, trying to discreetly, um, you know, find ways to help like that to me, um, you know, shows some of the, you know, sort of silver linings of, of, you know, when, when you expose a situation like this, um, it can always be like super demoralizing to see like all the people, you know, who either did not take action or did not handle things appropriately, but invariably there will always be people that actually did do the right thing and tried to help people for no other reason than they wanted to help and make things right and do the right thing. Right. So I think that's important to keep in mind. I mean, silence is always an essential, you know, ingredient of any type of abuse. Um, I did, there's this one quote that sticks with me of a story that I did about like sort of a prolifically sexually abusive coach, um, hockey coach in, in Chicago. And one of like his, the first victim that came forward publicly told me once that like silence is like an incubator. Right. And that it like just allows it to thrive and manifest and take on all these different um, sort of sinister effects. Right. And so um, I think what we've seen is like, you know, not just this story, but in a lot of stories of like abuse and, um, you know, exploitation of power, like silence is essential to that in and again, going back to why contextualizing um, things being important, like the at various different junctures, the pre- precariousness of the league itself absolutely, you know, engendered this idea of omerta or silence. And, um, you know, that ultimately comes back to, I think, like institutional protectionism, which is another like one of my sort of like essential elemental ingredients of abuse. Like whenever I attack an investigation or a story on abuse, I always try to focus first on like the incident or incidents and the, you know, alleged perpetrator. But then I almost always try to sort of like scale back and take the like macro view of like what is almost always a level of institutional protectionism that allowed that person to thrive and operate either undetected or operate without any sort of like punishment um, or repercussions. Right. And I think what one of the the biggest kind of concepts in this too, it, it's a term that Sinead brings up at the end of the story where she says there's this term, it's called institutional betrayal, right? That there there has been this system built around here where all of these elements come together and it results in investigations that don't go anywhere we've also seen multiple times in the nwsl of of coaches coming in even with potential red flags like uh, ahead of being fired getting hired and then departing and maybe the language around that departure is not accurate and we've we've reported on that a number of times washington spirit i think has proven a couple of big examples of that recently where richie burke um they, they release a statement saying, you know, he's got personal things happening. He's going to get moved into a front office role. And then the next day, there's a giant report about his behavior. And then he gets suspended. And that investigation kind of changes everything, right? So, 
I mean, one of the big struggles with the National Women's Soccer League from day one is that so much of what they do is reactionary and not not forward thinking, not, okay, how do we protect play? Like all of this stuff that could have maybe been addressed ahead of time, especially looking at what happened in the previous league where you have a situation like Magic Jack, which was not directly tied to the downfall of the league, but was such a huge part of why that league did not succeed on a number of fronts. But you have this kind of lesson only a year and a half before staring you in the face. And then there's nothing brought forward in the next version of women's professional soccer. Yeah. I mean, it, it shows to you like the danger of institutional protectionism, um, like actively thwarting like any sort of, you know, substantive progress and advancement where showing just a tiny ounce of institutional courage or even just like to some degree, human decency and empathy could go a really, really long way. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Yeah. I also think that there's, I mean, you're talking about this protective idea from an institution, but there's also this element of behavior that's been normalized within women's soccer, just in terms of is verbal abuse normalized? Honestly, absolutely. In the NWSL, like we... I, I cannot tell you how many times I've been on the sidelines and heard a coach screaming at a player and we're just kind of like, I mean, I, I remember being at Boston Breakers games with a former coach and just kind of looking around and being like, am, is this like, am I the only one that is concerned about what is happening at this given moment, right? Like of, is this normal? Am I the normal? Am I overreacting? Right. And that, that is that sense sometimes of, and I think to your point of someone coming in with fresh eyes and being like, no, you're not overreacting. Actually, that's that's not, that's weird. Um, but I think there's also just the actual coach-athlete relationship that is in play and having this kind of concept of, it's so spelled out in the NWSL anti-harassment policy that finally got put into place earlier this year. I mean, there's there's this policy is quite large, but there's so much that goes into this section about power imbalance. And I, I really want to dig into that concept of how power imbalance might be kind of the key that unlocks so much of this. Totally. And if I feel like, you know, one thing that I'm really proud that this story illustrated is sort of the insidiousness 
of when people in positions of power and authority exploit a power imbalance and how toxic and damaging that can be. I think like just society at large, like we tend to think of like sexual assault, sexual abuse, sexual harassment as really black and white, right? Um, But in reality, um, and I've encountered this a ton when reporting on like sexual harassment in Major League Baseball, there's often a lot more gray and more that's open to interpretation. And what I've found is that, you know, that has a couple of different effects, right? It sometimes makes people more reluctant to come forward because they don't necessarily feel like they will be believed. And it allows people who have certain patterns of behavior to sort of prey on those, on the sort of margins of what's acceptable and what's not, right? So when we talk about behavior being normalized, like coaches being verbally abusive, you know, there is a fine line between being sort of like this fiery old school um, tough love coach and like crossing a threshold into verbal and emotional abuse, right? And what I think this piece like really demonstrated was just um, how like sort of, I mean, like truly the sanctity of a player and coach relationship and how easily that can be exploited because players like futures, their livelihoods, their entire careers, in some cases, their identities um, are at stake in their truly in like the palm of their coach's hands. And what I think is so upsetting to see in, in this story specifically is the way in which like those players, you know, hopes and dreams and goals for their careers were weaponized against them in ways um, both big and small, but certainly exploitative, improper, and egregious. Yes. Yeah, this this kind of idea of, and this is not even specific to the story, but, you know, my own soccer experience, right, when I was playing this idea of, in order to become a better player, I basically have to, like, break you down and build you up, right? Like, we've got to break you down and figure out what the problems are, and then we get to solve the problems, and you get to be a better player. But it's then introducing that concept of, I'm the only one that can do that. Mm-hmm. You, you, like, everything comes from this coach and it and it moves beyond career stuff it it gets into that self-worth territory as well and i think that's what feels especially troubling on many levels yeah and like i mean trying to you know one of those sort of like textbook generalized like aspects of grooming behavior is to try to isolate, especially like in a coach player relationship is to isolate the player, um, you know, from either family, close friends, teammates that they're close with and to like, to make them feel as if they're entirely dependent on the coach, right? And then you like curry favor in certain ways, you either give them special treatment or you're particularly tough on them. Sometimes like sort of a combination at both used very sort of like deftly and skillfully to manipulate and distort and to toy with 
people's like emotions and well-being like it's really really disturbing stuff here and i'm i'm really glad um that this piece is being published because i think it shows one of the more sort of like toxic like things that we've seen in in some of these situations which is coercion right like you know grooming players um sort of really grading and eroding boundaries and establishing over long periods of time and like just sort of subtle ways to just like chip chip away at a player's confidence self-worth idea of who themselves are and like you know strip them of like a normal healthy boundary and use that as a way um to gain trust and manipulate i mean that's that's super shitty and it's super damaging like it has i mean the the echo of trauma that results from that um you know can last like years decades a lifetime truly yeah i think there's also just this idea of all of these personal things are within the boundaries of performance right so a coach has to pay attention to your body because ultimately the body is what like that that's your work like there is kind of that built-in concept of sports right that i think a lot of people really grapple with and not just in this particular context but of like for an athlete there is this kind of physical element of my performance is tied to my body and that puts my body in the realm of public discourse mm-hmm. or in the realm of a coach watching to see am i eating correctly am i like and it it if that boundary becomes like that one is so i think particularly dangerous especially in women's sports it reminds me a ton of like all the reporting that we've seen um around like usa gymnastics and mm-hmm. all of the horrific corrosive abusive practices that we have seen within that sport um some of which are tied to larry nasser um and some of which are not like i mean i remember covering that case and some of the more harrowing um victim impact statements were actually not about the sexual abuse but about the way in which, especially like for people who were, you know, high level elite gymnasts that were like, you know, spending large chunks of time away from their family at the Caroli ranch in the way that um, they were, I mean, they were starved. They were starved in the name of like optimizing athletic performance. And I mean, that's a total like physical and emotional like manipulation tactic that you know is entirely inappropriate to use on any athlete no matter how old they are mm-hmm. and you know it's it's not surprising that that's like a a hallmark that we see in a lot of these cases is like you know food being like weaponized diet being weaponized physical appearance weight being weaponized because those are sort of like those trigger items for you know, women athletes. And, you know, I hope that this continues like the discussion about how like dangerous that can be and how responsible coaches must assess the ways in which they talk about those things. I mean, if at all, to be honest, like, 
if I were coaching women's sports, like I don't really know if I would even go near any of that. It is interesting just from a knowing, you know, teams are now starting to track so much more, right? Like we have that technology to track so much more of our, like, do players really even have a choice of like opting in to like, oh, they get my sleep statistics or whatever, right? Like it is just a very interesting kind of, and it's not, you know, just particular to NWSL or it really is just kind of a larger question of what do athletes owe their teams in terms of their own personal behavior. I mean, like, you know, we, we talk about a work-life balance, but for some of this stuff, is there even the potential to balance some of these things for athletes? Like, is it really all on the table? Is it normalized for it all to be on the table and thus affecting team performance? Or, you know, it, it means that you get feedback on your own personal life in the middle of a, a halftime speech. And I think one thing that like makes athletes like really vulnerable and susceptible in really any, um, any person in like a really highly competitive environment. So like actors and actresses, um, you know, people that work in sports and other capacities, like, this idea that everyone is like gunning for these jobs and that if you put up a fight or you set up healthy boundaries or you like take a stand and speak up about something, like there's someone right next in line that's gonna take your spot. So like there's this constant undercurrent inspector of fear um, and of just like being disposable. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. No, I think that's that's the, the way that fear... <laughs> On so many fronts, like, again, it's not just a personal, but it's an institutional thing of my spot is at risk, my entire team is at risk, right? There's also this kind of weaponization of your own care for your team too, right? Of if I say something because I'm going through this situation, what does that mean for my teammates? Does that bring them into danger? Are there going to be repercussions for them as well? And so I think that also gets... Turn, it's just there's so many layers all the way down of pressure that is impacting the idea of 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 not speaking up. And and what is so interesting to me now is obviously for this story, people are speaking up, but we are now starting to see, I think, this understanding that speaking up might be the primary solution for actually like, you know, I've, I've been kind of thinking about it from a, almost like a cliche point of view, right? Like I think the door has been cracked open over the past year or so in the NWSL of kind of understanding like there's this whole world out there that we haven't quite 
understood what is actually happening. Like, what are the fundamental things that need to get addressed here? And the anti-harassment policy, I think, was kind of that that wedge into the door to keep it cracked open. And now is is this story the one that we finally, like, kick the door down? You know, I would say of all, like, you know, there were certain, like, things about this process that were very heartening. And I would say that one of those would be that, you know, let's say you and I would talk, would talk to someone that like wouldn't necessarily have like an essential role to this story or might not even have like super valuable information for us or, you know, in some situations um, has really nothing to gain by sharing information or helping us. I was heartened by the fact that I felt like there were enough people who are, I would characterize as sort of like stakeholders in the game who had this like sort of general, almost universal consensus of like, this needs to happen. This needs to be done. Like there is, we are in the precipice of a reckoning or amidst a reckoning. And like, we need these people, um, anyone that is harming players needs to be exposed in that. Like, I do feel like there was, even if there was like fear and reluctance, I do feel like there was a greater sense of like, this is the right thing to do to speak up. So I, I do think there is that paradigm shift of like where it used to be sort of like you knee jerk react to silence. I think even people that are not integrally involved in the story recognize the need to speak up about not just situations that were covered in this story, but like anywhere they see it in the NWSL. Right. I, I think there's also this idea of, I, I think that there is this understanding kind of across the board of what is going to happen next is going to be painful. And I, I think that we've seen it from your previous reporting from the USA Gymnastics, right? Like the reckoning part of this that is, that is, again, I think in the midst of is accurate. None of this is going to be pleasant, but it's necessary work because I think fundamentally the version of the NWL that has been built, right, that has 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 grown and has been designed in this way, like that's not a sustainable thing because it has brought players into situations that compromise their safety and their well-being. And there will always be people who I think um, will like condemn or undermine or chastise people who are willing to like report on these issues or hold people in positions of power and authority accountable and who will accuse you of like, you know, trying to tear something down. Right. But the reality is, you know, if you truly like love in, whether it be your university, an institution, a league, a team, like to me, that means you hold that team, league, institution to a high degree of accountability. You want it to be its best iteration of itself. Um, that means like higher standards, more scrutiny, not less. Right. And I, I think that is the general thing that we have seen coming out of the NWL over the past year. So, I mean, you, we go back even to our reporting here at the athletic about Utah and Deloitte Hansen and, 
you know, Washington spirit has obviously been kind of the big story of the past few months. But I mean, there have been other stories of just, you know, there's been a lot of thought about like what level of transparency is needed. All of like all of these kind of bigger conversations that we have spoken about on this podcast that are I think we're just kind of swimming in these questions and there's not an answer that we're going to come to today but fundamentally this desire of a love of a thing means you need it to to actually honestly in some ways love you back right of there has to be this mutual trust and I think so whenever like I like write a story about um you know, like a toxic workplace environment or like an abusive coach within an organization or, or whatever. Um, basically any like story that involves like exploitation of power or whatever, um, people like some people, I would say a smaller fraction, thankfully now, like assume that the people speaking out are disgruntled or have an ax to grind or have something to gain. Whereas the reality is um, people that speak out take a tremendous risk in doing so. They often have very little to gain and a lot to lose. And with that in mind, I do think it's important to like remind people that by far and away, the most animating factor for someone to speak up um, is not about retribution. It's not about revenge. Um, it is almost always the thing that sort of like, I feel like always tips the scale. If someone's on the fence, knows they want to speak out, but is scared. The one thing that always tips them over is wanting to make sure no one else goes through it. That's it. I mean, that is it. Like that is the reality of it. I can't say that enough. Um, but as someone that does this reporting a lot, that's the truth. I, I 1000, 1000% agree. All right, Katie, I, today, it feels maybe like a little bit of an end, but also I think its own beginning to unintentionally quote uh, Semisonic and to show that I am a geriatric millennial in, in one very easy, easy reference. <laughs> um, but I mean, it, it really does feel the end of, of one part of this. And we are only about to go through probably something much bigger, I think, that is big necessary work and obviously we will we will be there along the way as that goes yeah and i think you know just to remind people that like you know we're these stories are often um you know sort of they they take a lot a lot of time um to get across the finish line in very infrequently do they end when the story is published, right? And so, you know, we're mindful of that. We know that there are going to be reverberations. We know that there might be more people with experiences to share. Um, and so, you know, I, I would like to think that the story shows that we're committed to doing so. Perfect. All right. Well, thank you, Katie, for the time. And hopefully... I don't. Yeah, it's just it's it's a it's both a good and awful and create like just it's a it's a big day, I think, in many, many ways. And trying to put that that emotion into words is honestly very difficult as someone who has been very close to this for a while. Agreed. 
Thank you to Katie for her time. My name is Meg Linehan, and you've been listening to Full Time with Meg Linehan. You can always find me on Twitter and Instagram at It's Meg Linehan and my work at The Athletic. Full Time does not exist without the work and support of senior podcast producer Michael Zimmerman. From The Athletic, I'm Meg Linehan, and thank you for listening. Thank you.